Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hi everyone, uh, first things first, Merry Christmas, and secondly, welcome to the Mummy Movie Podcast, where we are looking at, admittedly, the incredibly unchristmassy film of Frankenstein vs. The Mummy from 2015. <laughs> um, lastly, I picked this because there just aren't really that many Christmassy mummy movies. I did have a look, but I couldn't find any, in fact. A few Halloween ones, which maybe could have been more appropriate, but here we are. Um, in terms of the format for the episode, we shall start with a look at the background information, then a section on the historical accuracy, and finally, I shall review the film. But before then, it is time for my dramatic intro. Right, you are a highly respected professor and Egyptologist who has just returned from Giza in Egypt. During the dig, your team discovered the long-lost mummy of the 6th dynasty ruler, Uzakare. Because of this incredible find, you will now have to juggle your work and love life as you have just started dating a dashing man named Victor Frankenstein. However, little do you realise that not only is the mummy cursed, but Victor Frankenstein has a dark secret. Soon you will be in the middle of a battle. Soon you shall witness Frankenstein versus the Mummy. Filming for Frankenstein vs. the Mummy took place on Fire Island in New York State. I will admit, I never heard of this place before this film, and I can't think of anywhere that sounds more like it's been named by a 12-year-old. 
In a way, I kind of wish more places had names like this, just because it would make the world a little bit more colourful. It's certainly better than, say, like New Hampshire, which is no offence to anyone who comes from there, but it's a bit of a boring name. I mean, you know, I come from Hampshire in England, so equally boring, realistically. I mean, let's face it, if you had no context of what a place was and you were told, right, you can visit New Hampshire, uh, New England, Wales, or Fire Island. Which one are you going to pick? You're going to pick Fire Island, aren't you? <laughs> anyway, um, I'm clearly getting sidetracked already, so let's continue with the episode. In terms of its release, it came out on the 10th of February 2015, and even on this debut day, it was only the 4,224th most viewed film on IMDb. And in fact, this is the highest it would ever achieve. To be honest though, I don't really put much faith in these rankings just because, well, interest in a film doesn't necessarily equal quality. I mean, we've all seen those really big blockbusters that have just been a bit disappointing. If I'm honest, I think the one that kind of springs to mind immediately for me would probably be the new Napoleon film. I'm not like as outraged about it as some people are, you know, like some people have really gone into the idea that it's completely historically inaccurate in every way and yeah, fair enough, it wasn't very accurate. Um, I think my main complaint for it was more that they tried to cover his entire career and the guy just had a massive career. It would have been, it would have made much more sense to just cover maybe one campaign or something like that just because that alone would have been a, a three-hour epic. I mean, obviously, if I was making the film, I'd have done it about his campaign in Egypt and the ramifications of that. But realistically, you could have done it about any of his campaigns, and I just feel that would have been a better approach, to be honest. But going back more broadly to films, like you also get those that just don't get the appreciation they deserved when they came out, but they're kind of seen as cult classics now. So the one that springs to mind immediately for me would be um, They Live by John Carpenter, uh, famously starring uh, the wrestler Roddy Piper. Actually a pretty good film, if I'm honest. It's very entertaining. But, you know, it wasn't necessarily massively profitable or anything like that. So I suppose the real question is, is Frankenstein vs. The Mummy a hidden gem? Well, I mean, I'm not going to say here. I guess you just have to listen to my review at the end of the episode to find out. At least what I think, anyway. When it came to the costumes and makeup in the film, according to the director, uh, Damien Leone, it took six hours to apply the makeup and wrappings for the mummy. I actually appreciate this, just because it reminds me of the, you know, kind of older mummy movies, like the, the mummy from 1932 and The Mummy's Hand as they kind of took a similar approach of taking a long time to make sure the mummy looked good. I will admit, though, I do feel a little bit sorry for the, um, for the actor. When it came to Frankenstein's monster, apparently they were not allowed to use the classic design, as this is technically under copyright by Universal. Though, by the same token, I swear I've seen other companies use that design. Maybe I'm just misremembering, I'm not sure, but or maybe they have to pay for the privilege. I guess that's possible. But either way, I, I don't think it's necessarily a big issue. There's nothing saying that Frankenstein's monster has to look that way, after all. Apparently, 
The director also did not want to copy the sort of campy style found in Freddy vs. Jason, and instead wanted this film to be serious. I shall talk a little bit about whether I agree with this approach in the review section. In terms of the cast, Ashton Lee plays Nyla Khalil, the main kind of female protagonist. Max Reisner plays Dr. Victor Frankenstein. Boomer Tibbs plays Professor Walton, who's another professor who basically becomes the possessed follower of the mummy. Think kind of like um, how Igor is to sort of many of the classic monsters. Constantine Tripes plays Frankenstein's monster. And finally, David Despain plays the mummy, Uza Kare. We have now arrived at the historical accuracy section, so here I shall simply go over the film, saying what it gets right and wrong in terms of history. Early on in the film, Nyla is talking to her class about an excavation she has recently been on to Giza. On the blackboard behind her, she has the 4th and 6th dynasties written down with the supposed dates they took place. I think the 5th dynasty is also written up there, but she's kind of standing in front of it for the entire scene, so you can't really see it. It's pretty clear that these dates have been taken directly from Wikipedia. And actually, it's a really good example as to why I don't use exact dates on this podcast, and why I frequently say we don't have exact dates this far back. If we look at the 4th dynasty here, it is down as being between 2613 BC until 2494 BC. In fairness, if we are to look on Wikipedia now, or at least at the time of this recording, they're still down as this, this hasn't changed. However, if we are to look at what is written on the blackboard for the 6th dynasty, they have it down as being between 2345 BC to 2181 BC. If we are to go on Wikipedia now, bearing in mind this film only came out, what, like eight, nine years ago? These dates have changed. Now they're down as 2305 BC to 2152 BC. Put simply, this is because as new research comes along, as new discoveries are made, these dates change. Bear in mind, during ancient Egypt, the dating system was done via regnal years. So for instance, if Pepi II was in his 24th year on the throne, then to date a document or, say, an inscription, the writer would start by putting regnal year 24 under King Pepi. So all it takes is a later regnal year to be found for his reign, or maybe, you know, even a new pharaoh is discovered and the dates have to change for that dynasty. And of course, if the dates for that dynasty change, then the dates for the other dynasties have to change as well. So we're talking about something that's constantly shifting here. In fact, Pepi II is a really good one to point out here because much like with many pharaohs, we don't actually even know the full length of his reign. According to some king's lists, he started ruling at age 6 and continued to rule until his death at 100. However, realistically, the latest contemporary date for Pepi II is year 64. Personally, I feel that 64 is more likely than 100, but by the same token, 
how can we have exact dates if we don't even know the exact amount of time a king ruled? Though, to this film's credit, most films I have watched don't even bother to do a simple Google search, so I'll give it something here, I guess. Also, I found this scene to be quite a lot of fun. Basically, she finds out that a lot of the students in her class believe that aliens built the pyramids, and this starts a bit of a debate. One of the students asks her how humans could possibly have built the pyramids when the Egyptians did not even have the wheel at this time and they had to pull 50-ton blocks hundreds of miles. Nyla then claims that the Egyptians did have the wheel at this time, but they did not use it as sledges were more useful uh, due to the kind of like sandy landscape. She then claims that the stones were not 50 tonnes in weight, but were closer to 2.5 tonnes. Interestingly, both the student and Nyla here get some parts right and some parts wrong. The student is correct about the wheel. Outside of pottery wheels, there were no wheels in Egypt at this time. So Nyla is wrong to say that they did have the wheel in Egypt at this point. However, she is correct that sledges would be more useful here. Bear in mind that some parts of the world did have wheels at this point. So for instance, the main one would be Mesopotamia. So that's roughly, you know, modern day Iraq. And parts of, say, like Syria, Turkey and Iran as well. It's just the wheel had not arrived in Egypt yet. Realistically, though, the wheels in these parts of the world during this time period would not have been strong enough to carry such heavy weights. Also, the type of wheel used around this time was a spokeless solid type. It would have hardly been suitable for the terrain of Egypt. Sledges, on the other hand, would have been more useful. As for the size of the stones, in fairness, there are some that are sort of between, I think it's about 25 to 80 tonnes, but they're few and far between, and they're generally ones that are above the king's chamber. The average size for these stones is about 2.5 tonnes, so Nyla is more or less correct here. However, realistically, although some of the building material, such as the limestone casing, did come from really far away, you know, as far away as Aswan, about 540 miles, um, for those in America, that's about, I think it's about 860 kilometres, the majority of the stone was sourced locally to the Great Pyramid. Also, even for the, the stones coming from really far away, it wasn't a case of them dragging them all of the way across the country. Instead, what they would have done is they would have dragged them to the Nile, where they'd have been loaded onto boats. Work smarter, not harder, and all of that. Slightly after this scene, we find out that Nyla and her team had found a mummy on their expedition, and they had brought it back to the university in America. There is basically no chance that they would have been allowed to take the mummy back to America. It would have very much belonged to Egypt, and the only way I could think they could do that would be, you know, in a kind of weekend at Bernie's kind of situation where they put sunglasses on the mummy and tried to sneak him through the, the airport. Uh, <laughs> obviously, I'm going to guess they didn't do that. And also, to be honest, for anyone who's been to Egypt and come back, I'm sure you're aware of how strict they are when you're leaving the country. You know, there's a lot of security. I've covered similar subjects to this in other episodes, I think most notably my episode on the Mummy 1959. So if you are interested in, say, like the ethics of archaeology and law surrounding 
excavations and the artefacts found, please do listen to that episode. But basically, due to the UNESCO Conference of 1970, we're no longer allowed to just go around looting objects willy-nilly, and rightly so, in my opinion. However, on the upside, the mummy they found is supposed to be an Egyptian king named Uzakare. Not only is this a real Egyptian king, but they even claim that he was a king of the 6th dynasty who came after King Teti and was succeeded by Pepi I. I feel the Wikipedia facts are strong with this one, but they are also not incorrect here. This is all, this is all right. In fact, in my opinion, Uzakare is a really good Egyptian king to use for such a film. Firstly, his body and tomb have not been found. In all honesty, his tomb was likely never completed as he only ruled for a very short time. Between one and five years is likely. Secondly, according to the Ptolemaic priest Manetho, who wrote the first full history of Egypt, Usukare may have actually been a usurper to the throne. In fairness, this is by no means a certainty, as there really isn't enough information about his reign to confirm this. Further, Manetho was writing thousands of years after Uzakare's reign. However, there are quite a few Egyptologists who believe that this is a possibility, though there are other Egyptologists who believe his reign probably was legitimate. Ultimately, there's only about three or four pieces of contemporary evidence about his reign, so regardless of where, whether one believes he was a usurper or not, there's undeniably going to be a lot of speculation there. Going back to the film... Victor Frankenstein then claims that the 6th dynasty was about 3,000 years ago. Ha 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 You fool, Victor. It was over 4,000 years ago, not three. <laughs> no, but in all fairness, uh, Victor Frankenstein in this film isn't supposed to be an Egyptologist. He's supposed to be a human biologist, so I guess it makes sense that he wouldn't necessarily know the dates of the Egyptian dynasties. During this scene, we also find out that an autopsy is going to be carried out on the mummy. We don't do that anymore. That's not a thing we do in modern Egyptology. Firstly, <laughs> incredibly, cutting open ancient bodies is just a tad disrespectful. Secondly, we don't need to do it anymore because we have things like x-rays, CAT scans and MRIs. Also, when Professor Walton is examining the body... Not only does he lean on the mummy, which uh, unsurprisingly is a big no-no, but he also just leaves his clipboard on it. Further, he has a habit of just hitting the mummy with his pencil. I'm, I'm not sure why he's doing that. Later on, this same character, Professor Walton, makes some very wild claims about Uzakare. He claims that he was betrayed by his guards, who chopped off his sensory organs. First, they removed his tongue, then his ears, and finally his nose. However, they left his eyes in place so that he could watch as they cut off his... Um... Little Uzakare. His pride and joy, if you will. I think you get the idea. This whole part is just made up for the film, and it comes up later when this just happens to happen to another character. So, overall, in fairness, the film did get a few things right. I like the fact that they used Uzakare as the mummy. He is a very appropriate one to use, even if the story they sort of create for him is incredibly fictionalised. 
Further, they correctly said that he was part of the Sixth Dynasty, that he was preceded by Teti, and succeeded by Papi I. All of this is really good. However, on the downside, Nyla also claims that they had the wheel when they were making the Great Pyramid. They absolutely did not, and would not for about a thousand years. Also, in this day and age, we absolutely do not run autopsies on mummies, and they absolutely would not have just been able to take it from Egypt to a university in America. I will say, I do feel the film does a better job than most when it comes to historical accuracy, but it, you know, it's still hardly 100% or anything like that, it still gets most of the facts wrong. I had a quick look at the cast list on IMDb, just to see if I could spot any historical consultants or anything like that. Then I could see there weren't any, though there may have possibly been, I guess. I think if they were there, they were listened to sporadically. <laughs> Realistically, I feel it's much more likely that there was just a bit of googling going on here. After all, none of the facts presented are particularly hard to find online. But either way, although the film is hardly accurate, I will give it some credit for at least putting in a little bit of effort. Okay, we have now arrived at the review section. So here, I shall simply talk about what I liked and disliked in the film, and then I'll rate it out of 10. As I spoke about during the historical accuracy section, fairly early on in the film, there was a scene where Nyla is talking to her class about the pyramids. I personally really like the scene. It is fair to say that the history here was a bit hit and miss, but it is also clear that there was at least some research done here. Further, I liked her argument against the aliens building the pyramids, as she points out that we should have more pride in our species. We have done a lot of bad things, and the pyramids are something iconic. Although this was all very cliched and admittedly fairly poorly scripted, it was at least a fun debate and admittedly one that most Egyptologists are quite tired of. Moving on, I will give some props to Boomer Tibbs who played Professor Walton. I felt he did a really good job in this film and this is especially true after he became the kind of possessed follower of the mummy here, as he came across as incredibly creepy. To me, it did feel as if he had taken some tips from Boris Karloff, in fact, as similar to how he had been in The Mummy 1932, he has a way of sort of like standing just slightly too close to people for comfort. and It genuinely is quite unsettling in a, in a weird kind of quite subtle way. In my opinion, I think he was the best character in the film. Further, there were one or two effects in the film that were actually pretty inventive. For instance, at one point, Professor Walton slits the throat of one of his colleagues and the blood seeps onto the mummy. There was then a clip where the blood evaporated into the mummy. I feel it's pretty clear this was done by rewinding the film, but it actually looked pretty good, and I do feel such effects are very important when it comes to low-budget films. I would much rather they take this approach than using very poor CGI, as I feel a lot of low-budget films do. There were also one or two of the deaths which I, I found pretty funny, and admittedly incredibly gory. For instance, um, at one point in the film, we see the mummy cutting the tongue of someone out, 
then the ears and then the nose. He leaves the person's eyes in so that he can watch as he cuts off their special area. We'll put it that way. This is a bit of a callback to earlier on in the film where we find out that this happened to the mummy when he was back living in ancient Egypt. However, I will admit I did audibly laugh when the mummy held the guy's nose up to his own nose. I, I just It just came across as incredibly stupid. And if I'm honest, I think it was made even funnier by the fact that I suspect that scene wasn't actually supposed to be funny. Further, when it comes to Frankenstein's monster, I get they couldn't use the traditional look for the mummy, but the way they have done him is just hysterical. I mean, don't get me wrong, it is clear they've put a lot of effort into the mummy here, but Frankenstein's monster is clearly just a man wearing a rubber mask. Further, he has long hair, wears a leather trench coat and smokes cigarettes. The director literally stated that this film was supposed to be serious and then makes the monster act like an edgy teenager. Though, to be honest, I kind of wish they had taken a more kind of campy, humorous approach to this film, as I did feel the so-called seriousness came across as very weird and didn't really work. Maybe it is just because it wasn't implemented well. Maybe it is possible to make a serious Frankenstein versus the Mummy movie. But the very concept of it screams goofy. And I don't get why they wouldn't lean into that. Aim to make a camp classic, why not? Further, I felt as if the script got worse as it went along. During the first half, although the film was relatively slow... There was at least some character development. It was clear that the film was trying to make you care for the characters. However, in the second half, when the mummy and the monster had risen from the dead, the film just turned into a mess. This means that the film literally got worse when it should have been picking up. In a way, it kind of reminded me a bit of the first Alien vs Predator in this regards, as I felt that film kind of did the same thing passable for the first half, a terrible mess for the second. Further, there are some parts that just came across as very inconsistent and made the characters seem a bit foolish. For instance, Victor Frankenstein is using the janitor at the university to get the body parts. When he asks for a fresh brain, he is then shocked that someone had to die for him to get that. I mean, seriously, what did he expect? He is supposed to be an expert in human biology, and he doesn't realise that someone has to die if he wants a fresh human brain. In another instance, Nyla has found out that Victor Frankenstein has raised the dead, and it's also just really obvious that he personally has killed a few people throughout the course of this film. Further, his actions have led to even more people dying, and in terrible ways. Yet later on in the film, she just forgives him. And we, the viewer, are supposed to be really happy about that. Victor Frankenstein is not portrayed as a nice person here. So why on earth would we be happy that Nyla has forgiven him? It doesn't make any sense. Finally, let's talk about the biggest sin that this film commits. It is called Frankenstein versus The Mummy. In the entire film... They have one encounter, and the fight lasts about three minutes. 
Bear in mind, during those three minutes, the camera keeps cutting back to Nyla and Victor as well, so realistically it's not even that long. Further, the fight isn't even good. It is easily the weakest fight in the entire film, and basically just involves them hitting each other. In terms of the reviews, there isn't really any way around it. They're bad. There is no critical consensus on Rotten Tomatoes, but it has an audience score of 11% out of over 100 ratings, and on IMDb, it has a 3.7 out of 10. Here, the lack of interaction between the mummy and the monster is frequently pointed out, with some reviewers even claiming the film was misleading as a result. Others felt the film was both bland and clunky, and yet more complained that the film was not good, but it was also not so bad that it was entertaining. Basically, it fell into the worst middle ground. For myself, sadly, I agree with all of these points. I will admit, any film involving Frankenstein is always a hard sell for me. This is because, on a personal level, Frankenstein is actually one of my favourite books, and I always feel that films entirely miss the point of the monster. He is not supposed to be a two-dimensional being of evil. It is the world that shapes him into the person he becomes because people are so obsessed with outward appearances. In fact, of all of the Frankenstein films I have seen, the only ones I can think of that portray this effectively are Bride of the Frankenstein from the 1940s, which, admittedly in my opinion, is one of the best horror films ever made. And I think there was one from the 90s as well that did a pretty good job. In fairness, I do feel I would not be talking about this at all if the film had taken that kind of fun, campy approach, as at that point, even I'm not really going to care about that because it's not important. But as the film did take a quite serious approach, I do think this is worth talking about. It's just yet another film where they've missed the point. Further, even taking all of this out of the equation, it's undeniable that the film just became a mess as soon as the monsters came along. It should have gotten better at that point, and it got worse. So, although there were one or two things that made me chuckle, there were one or two parts that I quite enjoyed, although I did like the character of Professor Walton, for instance, that's about it. I would give this film a 3 out of 10. Thank you very much for listening. I certainly hope you have enjoyed this episode. And if you have, please do consider liking, subscribing, sharing on social media, and join me next time on New Year's Day, where we shall be looking at the DreamWorks animated film, Joseph, King of Dreams. Once again, I hope you all have an excellent Christmas. I hope you enjoy the holidays and see you then. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.